be in our choir ministry, a microcosm of our church. We have some of the sweetest older saints in all the earth, and frankly, the history of the faith, part of that ministry. They loved Jesus for decades, many of them for more than half a century. And then you see some middle adults, and you see some young adults, and isn't, a, isn't it a benediction to your soul to, for these months to have watched teenagers participate in our choir ministry and our band and college students in our orchestra? It's hard to put into words the deep, deep pastoral satisfaction I have when I see that Jesus has become precious to another generation. Marvelous. I hope that as we turn a corner in our church calendar in our year, you'll pray for one another. Uh, this is always a sweet time of the year, but bittersweet. Uh, we've got a number of graduations, and when that happens, uh, that's a signal to start traveling, and many of our students um, go back home. You need to be praying for them. It'll reflect itself in our attendance, of course, but um, by the way, when you guys travel and go someplace this summer, you'll go to church, of course, on Sunday morning somewhere. Would you tell those people to come to Athens and come here to Beach Haven? Would you do that? I'd appreciate that. Um, tell them they can tithe at their home church. You, you tithe here too, by the way. But uh, in any case, uh, if you'll do that, we would greatly appreciate that. Let me invite your attention to Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. This morning, I want to address what is culturally a profoundly important topic to singles and to young people, and that is dating. We are studying through the Song of Solomon. We looked at attraction at the beginning of romance last week. We're doing a series on romancing the home. And as we do that, I want to say to those of you who are single and have no plans and no inkling of marrying one day, uh, I am sensitive to your needs, and we will address that at, uh, at the appropriate point in time. Uh, just know the Lord acknowledges that. Even in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7, there is a gift for singleness, and there is great opportunity to serve the Lord in that, and singleness can be a very meaningful ministry time uh, for Christ in your life. I'm also aware that there's been a shift the last 20 years in Christian churches from so-called dating to something more like courtship. And I don't have time to unpack that today. I'm not prepared to do so today, but I want to acknowledge there's an awful lot of wisdom in that shift. I'm also aware that the shift is not universal among Christians and that dating is uh, still a practice. And I'm, I'm going to address that today, but those of you familiar with courtship are going to see some elements of uh, courtship in the message today about dating. And so I want you to be uh, aware of that. In Second Sol uh, excuse me, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 8 through chapter 3, verse 5, we do find Solomon and the Shulamite woman uh, beginning their dating relationship, and there are some things they do on a date together here in the text, and I think that that is a marvelous model for uh, this particular practice. Dating can make or break a future marriage. And so date in a way that lends progress to a future marriage. How in the world can I do that? Well, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13 will tell us first, take a walk in the woods. 
Sherry Michelle and I do do that uh, every Saturday morning, or at least we did till baseball season arrived. Now we're immersed in um, in that. Uh, sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Uh, but uh, that's uh, what we did prior to uh, the starting of the baseball season, and we specifically walk through the woods and not downtown on a on a hike, and we don't go through the neighborhood, but we actually get in the car with the radio off and travel. Uh, to one of the parks and hiking trails in the area, and we walk through the woods. That's what we do so that we can only focus on one another. Personally, I have to be honest with you, I am entirely bored with nature. I am not a country boy, not at all. I am uh, more city-fied. I am entirely bored with nature. I don't have much of an appreciation for it. Uh, at least outside the state of Texas, and so I uh, am entirely bored with nature. But strategically, there's something very important about doing that. That is getting away from distractions, because it is in that environment God can build a relationship. And that's what happens in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, with uh, Solomon and the Shulamite woman. Now look at this. Now this is going to sound like uh, Amy Adams uh, or Giselle in Enchanted, okay? And so I want you to take note of this, beginning in verse 8. She says, the voice of my beloved. That might be the last time she gets excited about anything he says, but it goes on. Behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Now back in chapter 2, verse 2, he called her a lily, a flower. Here she calls him an animal. So they've got a very realistic grasp on male-female relationships. Well, how do you build a relationship like that between a flower and an animal? Well, you do it by walking in the woods. And this is what they'll do. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. Now, I did that early in our marriage when we were living out seven miles outside of town, three-quarters of a mile off uh, the highway, our driveway was, and I scared the daylights out of my poor wife. But... um, that's a story for another time. She thought I was an axe murderer, but I'm not, by the way. Okay. But anyway, he, uh, he's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. And I hear Giselle in Enchanted singing that. Um, only it's, uh, yeah, it's her at this time. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth their green figs, and the vines with tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. God builds relationships and exposes hearts and lives when there is very little distraction. Those who are in the midst of distraction will find an absence of wisdom and the voice of God, if that's all they live in. Now, sometimes you can't help that, but there's got to be time in a relationship where there is no distraction, especially in the critical time of deciding, is this my future mate? There's got to be that. Now, our world is addicted and obsessed with distractions. Nearly everyone has got something hanging from their ears or some kind of noise protruding into them at, uh, well, throughout the day. And, and I'm afraid that that's because most people don't like to think. They don't like the silence, and silence leads to thinking, 
and thinking leads to disappointment. Most people, I'm afraid, have got so much noise going on in their life because they wouldn't like what they would think about if they turned it off. That's a key. That's a marker. You need to understand. A, a marker of maturity is that you can stand some silence. And so that is what walking in this kind of environment brings to a relationship. Do you realize the greatest poets and authors walk through the woods? And it's not the physical, actual, literal walking through the woods that's the great benefit. It is the getting away from distraction. C.S. Lewis, at two in the afternoon, nearly every day of his life, would walk and would walk for a couple of hours until it was time for afternoon tea at 4.30. And that is what C.S. Lewis did, and many others through the years have as well. It gives creativity, it gives depth, and it gives God the opportunity to speak to the heart when there aren't distractions. And so, disciplining oneself to escape distractions with the person you're dating is profoundly important. The second thing is found in verse 14, and that is, talk about stuff. Talk about stuff. Look at verse number 14. <clears throat> oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. And this is a rarity for a man saying to a woman, let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Too often what happens is that through marriage you get tired of hearing one another's voice. But here he is thrilled at the beginning of a relationship and cries out, let me hear your voice. In fact, if you look carefully at the first two chapters, you will find that this is nothing more than an ongoing conversation between the two of them. And it's recorded on the pages of Scripture. Now just think that the first two chapters of your relationship with your spouse were recorded 3,500 years ago and put on the pages of Scripture, can you imagine what that would be like? Well, that's what you find here, an ongoing conversation between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. Now, why is it important to talk about stuff in dating? Well, let me point you to a couple Bible verses. One is Matthew 12, 36. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what is in the heart will usually find itself on the tongue. In other words, uh, whatever's down in the well will come up in the bucket eventually. And talking exposes one's heart. Well, is there anything more important to know about someone whose prospective future mate than what is in the heart? So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, but there's a second reason. And that's Proverbs 18.4 and 20, verse 4. Proverbs 18.4, the words of the mouth are deep waters. Proverbs 20, verse 4, purposes of the heart are deep waters. And wise is the one who draws them out. In other words, what is deep in the heart is exposed through words, and we draw that out in conversation. You know where a person really is if you can listen to them over the seasons, at least through four of them. And so it takes deep resources. It takes a deep heart to build a family. And by the way, when you're dating, you're not just looking for a mate. Women, you're not just merely looking for a husband. You're looking for a father for your children. And fellas, you're not merely looking for a wife. You're looking for a mother for your children. 
You're looking for in-laws for your parents. You're looking for people that you're going to spend decades with and the highest and the lowest experiences of life will be experienced together. You've got to know what is on the heart. And so there's got to be time where there's no distraction. There's got, in fact, significant time. And then there's got to be time where you talk about stuff. Well, what do we talk about? Well, let me mention just a few things. One, talk about the past. What about their upbringing? What did they learn about the places where they lived? What, what are the significant experiences about the past? What about the past of their parents? What about the past um, highs and the past lows? What about the present How do they feel about present things? Everything from relationships to things in which they're involved. Then what about their hopes? What do they envision about the future? What about their dreams? And then what about their wounds? What about their wounds? Feel free to ask questions. Listen, it may sound odd, but dating is a lengthy interrogation experience. And that's okay And someone who doesn't want to be part of that probably doesn't need to be part of your future. I remember when Sherry Michelle and I were dating in seminary, it really impressed me the things she talked about. It really did. She didn't talk about looks, money, popularity. She didn't gossip. She really never talked ugly or negative about anyone at all. Instead, she talked about Christ. She talked about her church. She talked a whole lot about her family in Tennessee. And one of the reasons is that there's just so many of them. I recalled counting them all. Uh, Her mother's side of the family does an annual Christmas party. Her father's side of the family does an annual Christmas party. And when Hannah Grace was uh, was born, She was number 60 of those still living on both sides. And there's been a baby boom ever since then. I mean, some days you don't find some of those people. They're all on top of each other. It's the most remarkable thing. And she talked about a lot. She talked, um, uh, well, she characterized them. Uh, She talked about the hilarity of her Uncle Charles. And she talked about the steadiness and the godliness of her Uncle Edwin. And then, of course, she talked about her mother and daddy. Back then, she didn't call them mom and daddy. She called them Joe and Becky, which I thought was kind of interesting. But uh, she addressed her parents in public conversation as Joe and um, Becky. And, and I listened to her, and I was so entertained by it. She talked about happy things. She talked about humorous things. And after a while, it dawned to me, there's my future. And that is exactly what I want because I didn't come up with that. But God had laid it on my heart to pursue that. In other words, the purposes of her heart were deep waters, and because the television was off, the radio was off, we didn't have anything hanging from our ears. And back in those days before Noah got off the ark, we could have things in our ears. Um, What was on her heart were the most important issues of life. Uh, Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. Talk about stuff. The the third thing, fix any problems. Look at verse 15. Catch us the foxes. 
the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. During the time when the grapes were new on the vines, little foxes could tear up a vineyard really well. Now, oftentimes the Israelites would build fences around their vineyards and keep out larger foxes and jackals and other predators or uh, intruders. But the little foxes could wiggle their way through and eat uh, grapes and, and absolutely destroy a vineyard. Well, she's not necessarily concerned about that. It takes more to build a relationship than to guard an actual vineyard. What she's talking about here are little foxes that enter into a relationship and destroy the budding grapes of romance and love. Such things as jealousy, the inability to solve problems, those kinds of things, bitterness, resentment, little foxes that destroy marital and romantic vineyards. This is what, this is what she's wanting to fix. It's important to date long enough to fix and discover and fix problems. In other words, meeting someone and marrying them three weeks later is probably not a good idea. Now, I will tell you this. I say that for a reason. Back in 1996, I was pastoring in North Carolina, and that one year I had the opportunity to help five of our couples celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. And there was a common theme amongst them. They, as they put it, fell in love one day and got married three weeks later, usually in the living room of the pastor's home. And I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Three weeks? Have you lost your mind? But wait a minute, you've made it 50 years. Okay, you did something right here, and you still like each other. That's impressive as well. Well, I got to listening, and most of those short marriage, or marriages that happened during, after the short dating period, three weeks, four weeks, were between people that had not just recently met each other, they had known each other since the first grade and gone through school with each other, and their families knew each other. And so it was a little bit different than meeting a stranger. Well, not a little bit different. It was radically different than meeting a stranger one day and marrying one another about three weeks later. That's what I'm saying here. Know each other long enough to identify and fix problems. Now, there are several models of how people handle problems. Not all of them good. One is the turtle model. That is, when a problem arises, the person, like a turtle who experiences danger, crawls up into a shell and pretends like the problem doesn't exist and won't address it. That usually leads to greater problems later because what the turtle actually does is that when the turtle has had so much pressure put on his or her shell, the turtle comes out and snaps and becomes a snapping, children, uh, a snapping turtle and dumps everything they're frustrated about a few weeks or a few months later. I know one woman that left her husband after 26 years of marriage. And she complained about, on the day when she left, offenses and bitternesses accrued on the honeymoon. Okay. Somebody's been putting these bitternesses into a gunny sack or into a shell. Okay, that's one model. A second model is Houdini. They just leave and disappear for a while go off, they try to escape. And some do that through alcohol, some do that through drugs, some do that through work or some other means. That's an inadequate model for handling problems and difficulties. Some are cowboys. They just come out with six shooters and start blaring away, firing away words, verbal bullets, launching and uh, penetrating and pelting 
their, uh, their loved one. Oftentimes they're trying to manipulate. Sometimes they're full of fear. Sometimes they're full of rage and anger. They're cowboys. And then unfortunately, well, these are all unfortunate, but then sometimes it escalates to Brutus. You remember Brutus and Popeye? Why in the world did the two of them ever battle over olive oil? I never got that. Anyway, that's the subject for another day. Anyway, there's some like Brutus that become violent. Now, at the very least, the moment he or she raises a hand to you and physically harms you, the relationship is over. You don't date someone like that. You get out of that. If I find that that's taking place in a relationship, I, I won't do the wedding at all. Uh, that, it, it'll be over. There'll be none of that. Well, the final way to handle it is in a Christ-like way. Now, I've spent a lot of time through the years expounding that, and I'll, I'll do that sometime at a later date. But all people tend towards one of these or another, and sometimes there's a mixture of these. You need to know your person you're dating, their model of handling problems and difficulties, and how they can fix things. Now, I hate to tell you this, but I was in a dating relationship when I was in seminary, before I met, uh, or before Sherry Michelle and I started dating, that I should have ended much sooner than what I did. Started dating around the fall semester, and I uh, had to go pick her up one day, and I was going to be late. So I called her and told her. And I got there, and it was kind of icy when I showed up. Well, I was kind of naive, and I thought she must be upset about something, but certainly not me. I mean, after all, I did call her, and nobody would reasonably get upset over someone being late, especially when something came up and I couldn't get there on time. Well, a week or two later, I had to pick her up again and carry her someplace, and she wasn't ready by the time I got there. Now, I had the presence of mind to call her and let her know a few weeks before that I was going to be late. I didn't get that from her, which is okay, but I had to sit and I had to wait and I had to wait, and 30 minutes later, we take off and we're late for where we had to go. I remember being in the car and saying, um, hey, it would kind of help me uh, if in the future um, you would let me know if you're going to be late. She said, late? Late? Well, I was late on purpose because you were late a couple of weeks ago. You know, I probably should have ended the relationship soon after that. That's spiteful. That's manipulative. But you know what I did? I continued the rest of that semester. I was naive. I was so gullible. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. But I, I went on the rest of the semester with that relationship. I went on the next semester with that relationship. And I got off into the summer. And when I got away from Jezebel, <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. When, when, when I got away from Satan's twin sister, um, I, um, I started reflecting on the year. It dawned on me that I was going days without thinking about her. And I was happier in the summer away, about 1,200 miles away from her than I was with her during that year. And it dawned on me 
I have spent this past year being mistreated and manipulated. She was gone like a freight train, like a toothache, like everything else. And I put it to an end. I want to say, you know, the person you date is going to have some weak areas. That's okay. But if they persist and they don't fix them, that's what you have to be cautious about. Uh, what you've got to see in someone that you're considering a future with is an ability to identify and take responsibility for personal garbage and the ability to change and fix it, or at least put some effort and energy into it. Not decline and get worse and spend an entire year manipulating and mistreating. In other words, the one I was dating was not very good about catching little foxes. The fourth thing, guard your purity. Guard your purity. Now, you need to know that this kind of atmosphere, walking in the woods, talking about stuff, showing some maturity to fix problems, is going to intensify everything. Desire, adrenaline, everything else. At some point or another in this kind of environment, if you spend time alone, you're going to face some temptation. You're going to have to plan to watch your purity. Now, verses 16 and 17 are subtle on this point, but they're tasteful. In verse 16, she celebrates a singular, if it were a marriage, we would call it monogamous commitment. My beloved is mine, and I am his. She celebrates that. I've got one beloved and he does as well. Our eyes don't roam. We don't wish we were with someone else. My beloved is mine, and I am his. And then verse 17 is even a little bit more subtle. There is a mountain range called Bethar. It's a small mountain range in Israel. The location is hard to find, but what we do know about it is that it happened to be two hills that were split, two split mountains. And I don't really want to elaborate on this, but when she talks about this in verse 17, she's talking about her anatomy. And she is dreaming of future intimate involvement. And to quote my favorite theologian, Forrest Gump, that's all I want to say about that. If you do these things and have a productive and mature dating relationship, it's going to intensify desire. It's kind of supposed to, but you've got to plan to be pure. Only those who plan to be pure will be pure, especially in this world. And so when you take a fruitful, growing dating relationship and you add it to the world, the flesh, and the devil then you have a combustible mix for compromising moral purity. And the moment you do that, you do not move the relationship forward with premarital sexual involvement. You actually stunt its growth. That kind of experience is so powerful, so bonding, 
so overwhelming and you swim in it for so long that you live in a fog. Now, when you're married, you're supposed to. That's its function. It fogs the mind. It closes one eye. You enter into marriage with both eyes open. You continue with one eye closed. You, you enter into marriage with a clear mind. You've got to continue with at least one side of your brain fogged up so that you don't see all the mistakes and shortcomings of your spouse. That's what the sexual experience does. And so the moment you involve yourself sexually in a dating relationship, you stunt and stop and terminate the growth of the relationship. That's why God said, among many reasons besides His holiness, not to involve yourself in sexual relationships before marriage. Now, <clears throat> this might be kind of hard to understand, but we Christians take this very, very seriously. The rest of the world doesn't. They are kind of confused why we get so tore up about all this. But this is one reason why. Premarital sexual involvement or any sexual involvement other than a man or a woman married to one another offends the holiness of God and it does serious damage to relationships. And, and that's one of many reasons why we oppose that. We are against premarital sexual involvement or any sexual involvement outside the biblical boundaries because we are for relationships. We're for marriages. We're for families. So let me just give you a few guidelines. Number one, and I'm I'm trying to be tasteful here, but number one, never be alone in a place where you can get horizontal. You don't need to lay down on the floor of the couch or a bed together. Number two, no movie nights, at least by yourself. Number three, do all your dating before 10 p.m. or do it in a group if it's after 10 p.m. If your dating relationship is decent, it's going to intensify everything in your soul. And there's going to be a desire, there's going to be the urge to merge. You've got, under those circumstances, you have got to plan to be pure. The, the fifth thing, and I'm not going to win any awards for popularity in some places, but, well, I gave up on that a long time ago. I'll be popular with you, honey, won't I? Thank you, thank you. <laughs> involve your parents or involve your family. The American approach to dating and marriage is so individualistic and therefore it's very unstable. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we're not entirely sure whether she has a dream or if this actually takes place, but look what she does. By night, on my bed... I sought the one I loved. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will arise now, I said, and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares, and I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchman, the night watchman, it's late at night, who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? And scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and to the chamber of her who conceived me. In other words, she's out late at night. She finds Solomon and brings him home to Mama. Now, I must tell you, it was as unusual then 
in many quarters, as it is today, to late at night to take a date to mom. But that's what she does. Usually, or in some places, in some cultures, and surrounding ancient Israel, the moral and religious convictions were such that they would engage in wild sexual activity without any boundaries such as you find in the Scriptures. As your relationship proceeds, in fact, even after marriage, and especially after marriage, young married people tend to grow in desire to include extended family. There is usually, not always, but usually a greater desire to be part and attached to the extended family because now the two young marrieds can relate to their aunts and uncles, their married cousins, their married brothers and sisters. They can relate better to their parents. There is an opportunity for a deeper relationship and that longing expands and grows, intensifies, especially after marriage. And so there are many reasons, and let me just mention a few to involve parents and family in dating. One, you can begin to build trust on the part of your parents in the person that you're dating and vice versa. That's going to be enormously important in years to come. Number two, your parents can help you evaluate. In fact, I strongly suggest that you give your parents veto power over anyone that you date. I did with mine. I think there were some, probably some spiritual deficiencies there. In fact, I'm sure of it. But truth is, I gave it to them. Well, you can tell they approved. But the truth is, is that uh, walking in wisdom with your parents is profoundly important. But number three, <coughs> by knowing your love's parents and family, and by knowing yours, the two of you know what you're getting into. Listen, you don't merely marry an individual when you marry. You marry an entire family. You not only marry a husband, but you marry your husband's parents, brothers and sisters, and the whole 60 of them. You don't merely marry her, but you marry her family, her parents, her brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, and the other 60 of them. It can be quite overwhelming. But these will be the predominant issues that you live with. And when coupled then with the greater desire to connect with extended family after marriage, you really need to know what it is that you're getting into. I've got to tell you, I'm convinced I married up. I really did. And yes, I am trying to score points. I am always trying to score points. But <laughs> I did. Um, in fact, my wife is president for the club for women who marry beneath themselves. And in her opinion, most of you ladies are qualified for membership. But in any case, um, I did. And I married up when it came to her family. Uh, she bragged on them. She was enthused about them. Early on in our walk and relationship with one another, it was very clear, very, very clear that um, she had a heart for them and that I was going to need to spend an awful lot of time with them through the years. Now, we've had some rough patches. We have. After 25 years, we've had some rough patches. 
in an 18-month period, we had six deaths in her family. Three of them 25 years old or younger. It's tough. Not always agreed about the locations where we lived. They haven't. We've done the Lord's will, but it was sometimes hard to explain to them. Haven't always agreed about every detail about how we raise our children, even on some very important issues. But I have to tell you, none of them have held those things against us. And they don't waller in it. Do you all know what I mean when I say waller? They don't swim in those disagreements. It's as if today those disagreements never happened. In fact, I've got to say to you today, I've always maintained a high opinion of them. I've had some low points myself, in my opinion. But for the most part, I've maintained a very high opinion of them. And my opinion, after 25 years now, my opinion of them is higher now than it's ever been before. I discovered what I was getting into. And thank God for it. You want that kind of experience. Because his parents, her parents, will be a primary influence on your children. His brothers, her brothers, his sisters, her sisters, will be a primary influence on your kids. And I'm happy with where that is. Now, oftentimes that that can be a mixed bag, but you need to know what it is that you're doing when it comes to extended family. Involve family in dating, and if you have to transfer universities to get near them, I'd be willing to do that. Now, it's very easy in this text to see an awful lot of him who created romance and true love. It's easy to see Jesus in this text. Walk in the woods with Him. Jesus said, Abide in Me and I in you in John 15. Talk with one another about stuff. John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. Fix problems. Jesus said, My peace I give to you, not as the world give I to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In John 14, 27. Purity. Jesus always maintained His purity. John chapter 8, verse 46, he looked at his enemies and said, which one of you can convict me of sin? And then as far as parents are concerned, Jesus had only a heavenly father, but he said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want you to hear what I've got to say. It's obvious from the Scripture that Christians should only date serious Christians. That's true. But I want to assure you, if you're not absolutely 100% certain that you know the Lord, listen to me. Look at the end of my nose and pay attention to everything I'm saying right here. Jesus Christ is the easiest person anywhere to relate to. There is no one easier to walk with. I first discovered this years ago when I was um, uh, a young Christian, and it occurred to me, he's the easiest one to walk with because if there's a disagreement, it's real obvious who's wrong. Couples spend 90% of their time debating who's right and who's wrong. There's no case, there's none of that here. And then Jesus always has the right answer. 
Jesus can solve any problem. The tangles of life undo. There's nothing too hard for Jesus. There's nothing He cannot do. And so it comes as no surprise that He bled for us. It comes as no surprise that He rose again from the dead. It comes as no surprise that for free, simply by faith, we can receive His forgiveness. And it lasts for all eternity. When you come to Jesus Christ, you need to know you come to Him. And I don't mean for this to have a sting in it, but when you come to Him, there are no irreconcilable differences and there's no divorce in His vocabulary. That's what He promises when you repent. Turn away, reject anything keeping you from Him, and then come to Him. Without Him, you're building a life on water. With Him, you're building a family on the rock. One woman talked about great assurance she had in Jesus Christ. And one man said to her, you act as if you were safe and secure on the rock. And she said, I am. Sometimes I do tremble on the rock, but the rock never trembles under me. Hey, I've been to the bottom several times. I've got a P.O. box down there, in fact. And I've got good news. At the bottom, there's a rock, and it's solid. So no matter the highs and lows in your walk with your love, Jesus Christ is the first relationship to which you need to commit yourself to. Would you come and give yourself to Him? Quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray about it. Lord God, we want to thank You for the truth of Your Word and how we bless You, Almighty God, for the great news of Jesus Christ. Thank you indeed that He is willing to walk with us in such a tight walk. It's like a vine and a branch. And He does teach us. And He does untangle the tangles of life. He is pure. He's never made a mistake. And He sure has never sinned. And thank you that He brings us to the Father. And I want to pray for friends today that you would strengthen them to repent and believe the gospel and set their heart on that first relationship and to do it now. As we pray, and as you keep talking to God, let me talk to you for just another minute. We're going to sing. And when we sing, our staff will be standing here in the front. And we want to urge you, no matter where you are, the worship center, the platform, the balcony, to turn quickly to Jesus Christ. If you need staff help, you come. Some of you need to come and become part of Beach Haven. Why don't you come? Some of you have other burdens and concerns. We'd be glad to pray for you. But I'm going to finish my prayer and we're going to ask you to come. Lord God, would you please gather for Jesus' name all the commitments that you planned this day for and created this day for. It's a day of rejoicing for you. And I pray that we would give you cause to rejoice to the maximum potential that you gave this day to Jesus Christ for. In his name we pray.